more than nine possible gifts are available to you from the Holy Spirit. But what are they? How do you receive them? How do you know which ones you already have? And what are they for? There's so much confusion. So let's explore what the Bible clearly says that the devil doesn't want you to know. This is the Shut Up Devil Show, and I am Kyle Winkler, broadcasting live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Central at kylewinkler.org live. And if you're tuning in on the podcast, please don't forget to tap that subscribe or follow button so that you never miss a show. Okay. Since the Old Testament, God's people knew that God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, gave special abilities to people. But at the time, his spirit only rested upon and gave those abilities to one person at a time, usually a warrior or a judge or something like that, a hero. Yet they had prophecies that God's spirit would one day be poured out on all people and placed inside of God's people. Then came Jesus, and he brought up the prophecy again, adding more to it. In John 14, to his disciples, he referred to God's Spirit as the advocate. The word advocate there is parakletos, which is a modern-day defense attorney, basically. That's what it means. He said the Spirit is his representative who will be with them after he leaves to remind them of truth. Then in John 16, he told them that the Spirit will convict the world of its unbelief in him. Later, in Acts 1.8, just before he ascended into heaven, Jesus told his disciples to wait for the promised Holy Spirit to give them power to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. So according to Jesus, as it pertains to believers, number one, the Holy Spirit will defend and guide them with truth. Number two, the Holy Spirit will empower them to share and demonstrate the gospel message. And thirdly, as it pertains to unbelievers, the Holy Spirit will work to get them to believe in Jesus. And this is exactly what happened at Pentecost. During a Jewish festival, Jews from 16 other nations were gathered when some of the Jerusalem believers were filled with the Holy Spirit and started to supernaturally speak in the languages that those from the other nations understood. In Acts 2, it says the people were amazed. They were from places like Mesopotamia and Asia and Egypt and Rome, 16 places, as I said. And in Acts 2.11, they said, we hear all these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. So if Jesus' use of the word advocate and my representative to describe the Holy Spirit isn't enough to kind of get an understanding of his character, then the experience here at Pentecost ought to show you how the Holy Spirit works in believers and toward unbelievers and what his personality is. He speaks about the wonderful things that God has done. And as you continue through the book of Acts, 
you'll see that this is exactly what happened on one group of people after another after another. First, the Jewish people there at Pentecost. 3,000 of them came to believe that day. Then Samaritans. Then Gentiles. Then Ephesians. In each case, both Jews and Gentiles, all kinds of people, just as it was prophesied, believed and received the Holy Spirit. And it didn't stop there. Acts 2.39, Peter boasted, this promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. All. That includes us. The promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and me too. All. Well, one of the stories in the book of Acts of Jewish believers receiving the Holy Spirit is the story of the Apostle Paul. Now, we know that Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, and in his letters, he gives us more of a close-up of what life with the Spirit is like. He mentions gifts, and he mentions roles of the Spirit that we should desire, earnestly desire, he says. Some of these are gifts that every believer receives. Some, he describes, are divvied out by God, different ones to different people. All of which are gifts of grace, literally. When Paul speaks of the spiritual gifts in his letters, he uses the Greek word for grace. It's charis, which is something you can't take credit for, something you can't earn, not a reward for hard work or meeting some condition, a true gift. So let's go through some of these gifts of grace of the Holy Spirit that every believer receives the moment that they believe. So we'll start with 1 Corinthians 12. This is really Paul's big chapter about the gifts. I encourage you to read it all for yourself. But he starts out here talking about the special abilities that the Spirit gives us. And he says in verse 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So let me pause there. Because the devil causes so much division over this idea of evidence of the Holy Spirit. He's turned people into gift inspectors using some of the more custom gifts that we're about to talk about in a few minutes as litmus tests to see if someone has the Holy Spirit or not. When Paul says right here, right up front, right in his introduction about the spiritual gifts, that if someone can say that Jesus is Lord, then that's evidence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Other gifts that every believer receives from the Holy Spirit include a new heart, the mind of Christ, power, love, and self-discipline. In Galatians, Paul talks about fruits that come with the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Now, I understand that some of these get overshadowed by the flesh and have to kind of work themselves from the inside out in people, but none of these, the new heart, the new mind, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, none of these are qualities you have to beg God for or produce through willpower. 
They are gifts of grace that every single believer has because the Spirit is in them. And folks, those that I mentioned there are huge. I mean, if those were all you have, that's enough. The fact that you can say Jesus is Lord, the fact that you've received a new nature that is naturally inclined to love and to peace and to patience and so on, don't minimize that. Don't let anyone else minimize that either. You just being who you are in Christ is enough to please God and to catch the attention of the world without you having to try to do anything else, really without you needing any more. But for the purpose, because God is so good, for the purpose of more encouragement, more strength, more love, more attention getting, to do things that he calls us to do in special ways, God disperses out what I call the more custom gifts of the Holy Spirit. And as Paul continues his letter to the Corinthians in chapter 12 here, he goes on to detail these. And let me make a comment here about the context of his letter to the Corinthians. Apparently, some of the Corinthians were using the gifts, the gifts that I'm about to mention, to draw attention to themselves. So they were abusing them, I guess you'd say. Others were envious of one gift over another. So they were making the gifts all about themselves. And that's still an issue today, by the way. So 1 Corinthians 12 serves as a bit of a correction from Paul. In verse 4, he begins, There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. And again, that word there for spiritual gifts is charisma, from the word charis, which is grace. Gifts of grace. Paul goes on, verse 5, There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but is the same God who does the work in all of us. So with that, Paul addresses the envy issue. Then he gets at the purpose issue. The gifts aren't to draw attention to yourself. They aren't for entertainment. In verse 7, he says, a spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. So we can help people, both believers and unbelievers. Just as Jesus said when he described the Holy Spirit. Then Paul goes through nine of what are often called the charismatic gifts. And they're called charismatic, again, because that word is charisma. Charismatic, charisma gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let's read starting in verse 8. To one person, the Spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. To another, the same Spirit gives a message of special knowledge. The same Spirit gives great faith to another and to someone else. The one Spirit gives the gift of healing. He gives one person the power to perform miracles, and another the ability to prophesy. 
He gives someone else the ability to discern whether a message is from the Spirit of God or from another spirit. Still another person is given the ability to speak in unknown languages, while another is given the ability to interpret what is being said. Did you catch the nine gifts? Wise advice, a message of special knowledge, great faith, healing, performing miracles, prophecy, discerning a spirit, speaking in an unknown language, and the ability to interpret that language. Now, I know that some of these have some historical baggage around them, so I'm going to explain a few of them in more depth in a minute. But before I do, I have to draw attention to how Paul introduced each one of them. He always said, to one person, to another, to someone else. Then he reiterated that point in how he ended the list in verse 11. It is the one and only Spirit who distributes all the gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. You are not going to have every one of these charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm not either. You might have one. I suppose you could have more than one. But you certainly won't have them all. Paul really went out of his way to say that. And it's a reminder, as needed today as it was back then, it almost seems like every decade has a new one of these gifts that's emphasized. And I think God's part of that. I think he brings some to attention at different points in time in church history, and it's probably according to the needs of what he's wanting to do and the needs of the culture. But we tend to swing the pendulum too far in one direction, don't we? And sometimes one particular gift can get overemphasized, and I've noticed that Christians start to judge other Christians according to those gifts. Right now, in the circles that I've been a part of at least, it seems like everyone clamors for prophecy, like personal prophecy. Now, of course, I'm not at all opposed to people who sense that they have the gift and go somewhere to learn how to steward it properly. Paul told Timothy to fan into Flames, the spiritual gift that God gave you. But I've noticed places that are trying to get every Christian to operate in this gift in particularly. And I actually think that's dangerous. For example, I went to somewhat of a charismatic university for my master's in biblical studies. And I love the university. And I'd go there all over again. Absolutely. But at the very end, they held a retreat in which the professor had us all get in a circle and give each other a prophetic word. Well, how many of the, I don't know, 50 to 75 of us, how many of us actually legitimately had the gift of prophecy? Very few. So what you ended up having is a bunch of people giving their opinion and speaking out of their mind 
and others taking it as if it were the word of God himself. And that messes with people's minds. And those kinds of experiences are why some people want nothing to do with this very legitimate gift. And it is legitimate. I've had a few prophetic words, like real prophetic words. I've had a lot of people want to give me a word. But I've had a few ones that I really accept as legit given to me in my life. One was a year into my born-again faith by someone that I know operated in this gift. To this day, I still reflect on what he said to me because it was a word of love, a word of affirmation, a word of encouragement. It represented the character of Jesus. It was a word of the advocate. It helped me, and it prepared me for something. And honestly, it still prepares me for something. And that is very much part of New Testament prophecy. In Acts 11, there's a mention of Agabus, who was called a prophet, who predicted by the Spirit that a great famine was coming on the Roman world. That word caused the believers to show love. It says that they sent relief to those in Judea. In that instance, the prophetic gift was foretelling. Often, it's forthtelling. It can be both foretelling or forthtelling. Forthtelling sounds a lot like preaching. Always in line with the character of the Spirit as Jesus' representative, as the advocate. Always encouraging, always edifying and blessing, never condemning or fear-mongering. If somebody's trying to prophesy that into your life, shut it down right away. Not God. So that describes the prophecy gift. I'm not going to go into detail like that through the other eight gifts. Most of them are fairly self-explanatory. I've known people who have a real undeniable gift of healing. I've seen it operate with my own two eyes. I don't have that gift, and I used to feel bad about it, but I don't anymore. I have a different gift that is equally as necessary. I've known people who have incredible faith. Like I've seen people who have the faith to give away tens of thousands in one day and then get it all back the next day. Again, I used to feel bad that I don't have that kind of great faith. I thought I needed to somehow muster up that kind of faith. But that kind of great faith is a gift. That's what Paul said. So don't feel bad if you don't have that kind of faith. Do you believe in Jesus? That's enough to be a Christian and please God. What about the gift of tongues? This could be its own message, probably its own series. And I know that I won't make everyone happy on this subject. I won't be able to answer every question on this subject. Trust me. <laughs> I've heard them all, I think. I was raised Catholic, born again in a charismatic church, went to a Southern Baptist undergrad college, worked at a non-denominational megachurch, worked at an independent Baptist apologetics ministry, went to seminary at a charismatic university, as I said earlier. 
and they all have differing thoughts on this one. So I know the questions, the arguments, I know the controversies. And this isn't a message entirely about speaking on tongues, so I'm going to have to just hit the highlights here. But let's look at a few of those highlights straight from Scripture. Mostly, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in which Paul addresses the gift of tongues. Read it for yourself. I can't go verse by verse here. But in 1 Corinthians 14, he says that tongues are a language that's unknown to the speaker, but somehow known at least to some hearers. That's what happened at Pentecost. As the story goes in Acts 2, the Jewish believers from Jerusalem began to miraculously speak in languages that the Mesopotamian and Asian and Egyptian and Roman Jews and Jews in 12 other nations understood. As I said earlier, the words they heard in their own languages were words about the wonderful things that God had done. This is part of what Jesus promised before he ascended, that they would be filled with power from the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses to people to the ends of the earth. And in this case, the experience of speaking in tongues led to 3,000 Jewish people believing in a single day. In Acts 10, the Gentiles believed and received the Holy Spirit, and they heard speaking in tongues too. Acts 19, Ephesians believe and receive the Holy Spirit, and they are then heard speaking in tongues. At some point, the Apostle Paul began to speak in tongues, which makes sense since he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And these Gentile regions were very multicultural. Just like it was at Pentecost when you had 16 different nations of a bunch of different languages, that's how these Gentile regions were. So the gift of tongues was helpful to Paul and others in those areas for the purpose of evangelism. Well, like I said, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul further explains this. It could be its own teaching. But a couple things you'll get from this chapter. A couple more things. If you speak or pray in tongues in a church, then Paul says you should always have an interpreter. Or pray for interpretation. Otherwise, only God is going to understand what you're saying. And I think that's clear enough. You know, if all of you who are tuned into me now, if you only know English, and I miraculously begin to speak in Portuguese, what good is that to you? It's as Paul said, only God would know what I'm saying, and I'd be edifying myself, but nobody else would get any benefit unless there's an interpreter. If there isn't, Paul goes on to say that you should either stay silent or speak in tongues to God privately. Secondly, a little later in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22, Paul says tongues is a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Now, what does that mean? Because it's believers who speak in tongues, so isn't that a sign for believers? Why does Paul say it's a sign 
not for believers, but for unbelievers. Well, he means how it was demonstrated at Pentecost. That's really its purpose. It's meant for building the church. It's meant for evangelism. It's part of Jesus' promised power to be a witness to the ends of the earth. It's to help believers communicate the gospel to unbelievers. Does this still happen today? Yeah. But besides Peter's affirmation that the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and your children and people far away, for all of us, you really have no other choice but to accept personal testimony in order to believe that it still happens today. Now, I know that some people have a hard time with that. As I said, for about five years, I worked in an apologetics organization, and there were a lot of people there because those kind of people are naturally logical thinkers, don't really consider experience much of anything. Well, it was a struggle for them to build belief on experience. They had a hard time with this, and I get it. But I've been in church services where a person or two later said that they heard the speaker in, I don't know, Korean or something. I don't remember what it was. Some other language that the speaker obviously did not know. But yet, somehow they heard him in it. I've heard stories of missionaries who experienced this too. And I have no reason to doubt any of these stories. So from my experience, and you can take it or leave it, I believe that the gift of tongues is still active today, just like the eight other charismatic gifts that Paul listed in Corinthians. Some are still gifted with wise advice. Others still receive knowledge about things they shouldn't otherwise know. Others still heal. Others still do miracles. Others still prophesy. Some can still discern the spirit behind things. Some can still speak in tongues. Some can still interpret. The only indication that Paul gave for the end of these gifts is in 1 Corinthians 13.10. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things, speaking of the gifts, these partial things will become useless. Some people in the last century have interpreted the time of perfection as the canonization of Scripture, which happened about 350 years after Jesus. And that's just silliness. Nobody in church history ever interpreted it that way. That's a modern interpretation because people don't want to believe that they still operate, probably because they had a bad experience with them. But the time of perfection that it's talking about here, that Paul's talking about, is obviously the end of the world. The Greek word is teleos, which means completion, the finishing of something. It's the finishing of the world. It's when we are all with God. And after all, I mean, that just makes sense because the gifts of the Holy Spirit wouldn't be necessary when we're all with God anyway. They're for us while we're on this earth. Now, the charismatic gifts those nine aren't the only 
custom kind of gifts that Paul mentions that God disperses. Elsewhere in his letter to the Corinthians, he called singleness a gift, a charis. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27 through 29, he said the Holy Spirit gifts people with certain roles. Apostles, prophets, teachers, those who do miracles, gifts of healing, those who help others, gifts of leadership, and again, tongue speakers. It's my belief that the gifts Paul mentions in his letters aren't all there is. He might be giving broad categories. But I believe that within those categories, God gifts people according to the needs of whatever culture they are in and whatever they're asked to do. Some of your talents, maybe, are spiritual gifts that perhaps you didn't have until you received the Holy Spirit, but suddenly you can do something in a way that you couldn't before. That would be one of those custom kind of gifts or custom roles. For example, for the building of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the Bible says that some were gifted by the Holy Spirit with an ability to build. Some were gifted with an ability to engrave. Some were given an eye for design. All came with the Holy Spirit. But again, besides the standard gifts that we all received with receiving the Spirit at salvation, every time the Bible mentions a gift or an ability of the Holy Spirit, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New, It is always clear that it is God who is the one that gives it to different people for different reasons. It talks about one having one, another having another, some have this, some have that. You could have a combination of several. Maybe you could be a single teacher who can heal, or maybe a builder who prophesies, or maybe a doctor who can discern spirits but nobody has every gift. But how do you know what you do have? How do you know what your gifts are? Well, I don't have a 10-step answer for you. It doesn't really work that way. You just kind of know. A spiritual gift is much like a natural gift. If you're good at music, you're good at music. If you like to preach, you like to preach. If you're good with your hands, you're good with your hands. You don't really choose to like or be good at something. You just find yourself interested and good at something. Now, sometimes you might have to put yourself in situations that test to see, is this something that's really in me or that I like to do? I've had to do that. Since my salvation, or shortly after, I felt a gift for teaching. Over the years, I put myself in situations that tested that gift and helped me to hone the specifics of it. Through some trial and error, I discovered that street preaching is not a gift of mine. So far, neither is healing, neither is singing. While I'm gifted at teaching, teaching elementary kids is another one of those that I learned the hard way that is not part of my teaching gift. So yes, there's a process where you might just have to step out to find out. 
Some of them might come after some kind of an encounter. Timothy, Apostle Paul's protege, received his gift through the laying on of hands by Paul. I know a guy who was listening to a worship song when suddenly he felt like what he describes as a bolt of lightning go through him, knocked him over, and shortly after that, he had the gift of healing. He figured that out because he started to have a passion to pray for healing, and people got healed when he prayed. So there's going to be some kind of inclination in you to use whatever gift you have. And there's going to be results when you use it. But you can't really go to school or sign up for some course to obtain a spiritual gift that isn't for you. And you're not going to get the gift of every minister that he asked to lay hands on you. A gift of grace is just that. It's a gift you can't earn or learn or convince God to give you. You can ask him for one, of course. But ultimately, God gives a gift to you when and how he wants to give it. And then you just have it when you need it for the purpose of helping people and building the church. That was the heart of Jesus' ministry on earth. And as his representative, that's the Holy Spirit's heart too. That's what he does too. He gives believers these gifts of grace, each in a custom way, to help us experience his grace, to proclaim his grace, and to demonstrate his grace. All because he's good. Speaking of that, you know, you really can't give what you don't have. To give grace, you need to know it for yourself. To give love, you need to know love for yourself. And I know that love and grace and the goodness of God is really a struggle for many people because sadly, tradition and religion have gotten in the way of people experiencing those for themselves. But this ministry exists to help with that. And we've created some spirit-inspired tools to do so. My Shut Up Devil book exposes the devil's part in it all, including the top 10 lies that he uses against you. I think on these things, Scripture Journal guides you through 30 days of grace-based scriptures with reflection prompts strategically crafted to help you reprogram your mind and life according to God's truths. These faith-building, devil-busting resources and more are all available on my website at kylewinkler.org. Okay, that does it for the Shut Up Devil Show. Remember, God is good and he is for you and we're here for you too. Every week on my website at kylewinkler.org on our podcast and wherever you get social media. Don't forget wherever you're watching or listening to tap that subscribe or follow button so that you never miss a show. I'll see you next time.